Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We are currently right in the middle of our Trinity term for our 2019-2020 Junior Fellows Program. It's been exciting and encouraging to have an excellent group of students here in Birmingham, Alabama, to learn and go through the entire Bible to get the Theopolitan vision in their bloodstream, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in the three worship services that we have during the day. And we appreciate your prayers as we continue to work to develop these students over the next few months. In this episode of the podcast, we have Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the sixth word, thou shalt not kill. We want to thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and we hope that you are encouraged by it. And here are Alistair Roberts and Peter Lightheart discussing the sixth word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts. And today we're discussing the sixth commandment, or as we've been calling them, uh, this is the sixth of the ten words. I'll say it again. I've said it in every episode about the ten words. We're using that phrase, ten words, because that's the phrase that's used in the Old Testament to describe this uh, set of words. And it's a useful reminder that the ten words include not only commandments, but other kinds of speech acts. There are promises, there are threats, there are declarations about the character of God that are included. There are declarations about what God has done. He's uh, the God who creates and takes rest. He's the God who brings Israel out of Egypt in, in the Exodus and gives them rest. Uh, so there's a lot more in the ten words than just ten imperatives. Uh, early on in our series, we looked at the structure of the ten words, and we've been operating on the paradigm that the ten words divide up literarily into two sets of five. The first five words uh, all include some kind of rationale, a promise, a threat, or some kind of rationale, like the Sabbath command, and you keep the Sabbath because Yahweh does, and you imitate Yahweh. So the first five commandments all have that kind of rationale attached to them. They're not bare imperatives. They also all include the name Yahweh, the so-called preface, I am Yahweh, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is actually part of the first word. And so that's the, that's the basis or foundation for the prohibition of worship of other gods. When you include that as part of the first word, each of the first five words includes the names, name Yahweh. The second five words are uh, literarily sharply distinct. There aren't any rationale. There isn't any rationale in any of them. There's no reference to the name of Yahweh. The uh, commandment against uh, murder, against adultery, against stealing in the Hebrew are simply two words. It's a neg uh, the negative particle, lo, in Hebrew, along with a verb. That's all that's in the commandments. There's no explanation. There's no connection with uh, Yahweh's character or his actions on Israel's behalf, just bare commandments. So you're just looking at the two, the ten words literarily, they divide up neatly into a five and five structure. And so by moving into the sixth word, which by our numbering is thou shalt not kill, by moving into the sixth word, we're moving into the second half of the ten words and uh, the second table, as it were. Uh, we're moving from commandments that have to do with our relationship, Israel's relationship to Yahweh, 
our relationship to God, commandments that have to do with love of God, to commandments that have to do with love of neighbor. And um, I think it's useful to think of the first of uh, each of those five sets of five as a kind of uh, introductory commandment to the particular set. So uh, all of the first five words are explications of the first word, which is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. All of them are various forms of idolatry. And I think it's helpful to think about the second five words coming under the heading of the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill, all of them being different kinds of murder, different kinds of attacks uh, on the image of God. You have attacks on God, forms of idolatry, and the second five words have to do with attacks on the image of God, whether it's a direct attack on the image of God by an act of violence, whether it's an act, attack on the image of God as it exists in a marriage a, a marriage uh, uh, union, whether it's an attack on the image of God by an attack on property, an attack on the image of God by an attack on somebody's good name, as you have in the ninth word. Covetousness is a kind of desire to seize or to attack the uh, property or the spouse of another person, so it is a uh, uh, you can see it under that heading. I say that with an, and I do agree with John Frame's point that you can look at all of the commandments from the viewpoint of all the other commandments. You can make any single commandment the perspective from which you can view all the other ones. I think that's true. Uh, you can see a kind of paracritic mutuality to the way the commandments work. But uh, in terms of literary structure, it does seem like that 5 plus 5, that seems fairly obvious literarily. And then taking the first of each of those five as the lead commandment that's setting the context for the others uh, is significant. So we're entering into commandments that have to do with love of neighbor. And I think um, given that murder is the first of that set of five, murder is prohibited because it's an assault on the image of God. That's what Genesis 9 tells us. Um, and uh, that sets a heading for the, the next several commandments that come after. That can be seen in terms of the fact that God alone gives life and that God as the Lord and the giver of life, that's fundamental to who God is. Um, and the work of evil, in some ways, paradigmatically, it's the taking of life, the bringing of death in various forms. So Jesus in John eight forty four says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. It's maybe not the sin that we'd first bring to mind when we think about Satan, but yet it's the thing that's mentioned by Christ. That he's also a liar from the beginning. But that emphasis upon murder, he's the one who wants to destroy the life that God has created, the life of the garden in fellowship with God, the life of um, being enduring in God's good gifts rather than being cut off from them in exile and ultimately in death. And Satan is the one who cannot create, but he can destroy. And death and murder are about the destruction of what God has created, the good gifts that he has given. Yeah, and you, you can see that same kind of breadth in the way that, um, particularly the Old Testament uses the language of violence, which is not just, it's not just used in context where it's violence against a person, an assault on a person, but um, a false witness is sometimes called a witness of violence. Uh, there are passages that speak of um, an assault on property or an abuse of uh, an abuse of a poor person as an act of violence. Uh, you're not attacking the person directly, you're attacking his property or you're attacking his 
his legal standing, his legal status, or his ability to get justice. Uh, so that yeah, the language of violence expands out in a similar ways. Uh, it's not just uh, not just uh, applied to specific attacks or direct attacks on the person. We've commented in, on the in the past on the connection between Deuteronomy 5, where the ten, ten words are repeated, and the later chapters of Deuteronomy where they're expanded, the principles that are involved in them, and the expansion of the principle of the sixth command or the sixth word connects it with the example that you gave of false witness, that someone who brings a witness of violence against their neighbor. Other examples, the way that the laws concerning warfare are designed to prevent wanton destruction. So you don't just destroy the environment of the places you're attacking. You don't cut down all the fruit trees, things like that. The way that you treat the um, nests of birds, all these sorts of things are comprehended within that broader treatment of some of the principles, which suggests that there's a greater statement about God's lordship of life and the way that we should relate to that that's being made here. It's interesting that um, you mentioned that, that those um, restrictions, you don't make war against the fruit trees. Are they men that you would make war on them? No, they're not men. Uh, but those are, that's in the context of when you make war. Uh, so there, it's in the context where there's a, uh, there's a legitimate killing, but under, under restrictions. So there's not, it's not a uh, total warfare is not permitted. Uh, but warfare is permitted. So that, and that raises a couple of questions about the sixth word. One is the preferable translation of the verb, ratzach. Uh, there's uh, traditionally thou shalt not kill. It's uh, more usually, I think, translated uh, thou shalt not, or you shall not murder in uh, more recent translations. I think the thou is actually preferable, as I've explained previously, because the, the, uh, the verb is in the second person singular. But Ratzak is translated as murder, which is a, obviously leaves open the possibility that there might be legitimate forms of killing uh, that uh, the, the commandment is not covering. But at least in my work on that verb, I don't, I don't think that, that narrowing works because the, the verb is used, the highest concentration of the verb is, used, is in uh, Numbers 35, which has to do with the cities of refuge. Uh, and the verb there covers not just murder, but it covers manslaying, which is not the same as murder. It's not punished the same as murder. And at least in one instance in that chapter, it describes what the Avenger blood does. So the Avenger blood also ratzak. So that's obviously not murder. That's the just punishment that he's carrying out. He's supposed to do that, supposed to carry it out. And yet the same verb is used to describe it. I think the probably manslaying would be the, that leaves it ambiguous about whether it's intentional or not. It's interesting in Numbers 35 that even an accidental slaying of a man, even an accidental shedding of blood on the land, has to be dealt with. The, the man who acts, you know, he has no intention to kill anybody, and his axe head flies off and hits somebody in the head. Uh, he's, uh, there's, no, there's no intention behind it. There's no anger or hatred behind it. And yet, blood has been shed. He can't just go about life as normal. That still has to be dealt with, even in even in that accidental case. So, any kind of manslaying is the the Torah deals with uh, doesn't deal with it in the same way. Manslaying in in that kind of accidental situation 
you have to be confined in a city of refuge. Uh, murder requires the death penalty, and there are there are occasions when when uh, killing man when slaying a man is legitimate. But uh, there's no blank check for manslaying in the Torah. Even these accidental kinds have to be dealt with uh, in in specified ways. And as we mentioned, war isn't open season on life. Um, there is a very clear limit that presents the act of war, like other acts, as acts of judgment. That there is a principle of justice that um, must govern the actions. Right. So, and so the the I think the the principle is, as you said, God is the Lord of life and death. But there are certain occasions or certain zones. There's certain. Uh, I say certain occasions when God has delegated the authority over life and death uh, to human beings. Uh, again, that, the root of that is in Genesis nine, when uh, Noah is told that uh, whoever sheds man's blood by him shall, by man shall his blood be shed. So there's a permission, I think, of corporal punishment, capital punishment. That's obviously part of the Torah. The Torah permits. Uh, and requires capital punishment in certain cases. It, re- it permits capital punishment, but for other cases, warfare is permitted. But these are this is a, a narrow range of delegated authority over life and death. There's no again no blank check that's given. That cuts against different kinds of positions that are out there concerning the sixth word. You have uh, pacifists who will say the sixth word prohibits killing, and therefore it prohibits any form of killing, including killing in war. It, it uh, prohibits any kind of capital punishment for any crime. That's one possibility. Others will point to the obvious places in the Old Testament where you have permission, civil authorities are given permission to, or given authority over death, uh, life and death, uh, and then see that extended to the New Testament in various ways, um, but not recognize the fairly severe restrictions on that authority. I think that it's. I think it's important to maintain both of those. There, God does delegate this authority, but um, as William Cavanaugh, who's a pacifist, puts it, human beings may take life only by God's permission. I think that's the that is the principle of the Torah, and it's the principle that we should operate by. Mentioned earlier the way that these themes are expanded in Deuteronomy, and I find it interesting there that there are some positive commands concerning the way that you treat not just fruit trees, but also animals, that your neighbor's ox or donkey, if it has fallen down by the side of the road, you don't hide yourself from that. You help him deal with the situation and help that animal. In the same way, the bird's nest, that you show concern, you leave the mother and don't just take all the the birds together. Um, And then also, when you build a house, that you make a parapet for your roof um, so that you don't bring the guilt of bloodshed on your household or anyone if anyone falls from it. There are a series of commandments there that expand this in a more positive direction to take concern for the life of animals, to take concern for um, avoiding accident, all these sorts of things which go beyond the mere not taking of life willfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that obviously animals are allowed to be killed and eaten, uh, at least from the time of the flood, uh, and uh, Israel's festival calendar includes feasts that uh, include a lot of meat. I don't see, any, see anything in the New Testament that uh, that changes that. Paul deals a lot with eating meat sacrificed to idols, but the issue is not uh, has, doesn't have to do with the 
the ethics of eating meat per se. It has to do with the ethics of eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But even there, you know, the, I think the, the commandment deals with manslaying. But even in the case of uh, animals, there are, it's a, a slaying of an animal in the Old Testament is surrounded by various kinds of restrictions. I mean, when Israel's in the wilderness, they can only slay an animal at the altar. So it becomes a sacrifice. It becomes a, it's becomes a sacred rite. And even when they enter the land, uh, there's not a, there's not, again, a blank check on what they can do in, in slaughtering animals. There's, as you pointed out, there are restrictions on taking the eggs and killing the bird. There's restrictions on uh, boiling kids in its, kid in its mother's milk. There are restrictions on how you slaughter an animal. You have to shed the blood of the animal. Uh, it has to go down into the ground. You can't eat the blood. So even when it's taken outside of the strictly sacred context of the tabernacle, even slaying something that's not human, slaying an animal, is still treated with this kind of quasi... There's a, there's a ritualized aspect to it uh, that uh, I think partly is uh, designed to remind Israel that even with animals, the, the, the Lord is the Lord of life. Uh, and uh, they uh, slay and uh, kill and eat animals only by the Lord's permission. Your, your comments on the, uh, the positive dimensions of the sixth word takes us also to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus deals directly with the sixth word. Uh, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, any man who's angry with his brother is subject to judgment. And then he goes on to describe a series of scenarios. It's rooted in that same kind of uh, the, the perspective of Torah, that there's not just a bare prohibition of killing another human being. That's if. If you've spent your life avoiding killing human beings, you haven't necessarily kept the sixth word. Um, right. That's that's minimal. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of other things. Even within the Torah, there's all kinds of other things that are associated with it. Uh, and then when Jesus uh, speaks about it, I think he's uh, expanding further that same kind of that same kind of ethic that is promoting and protecting life, uh, not simply refraining from taking life. Yeah, the way I've uh, understood this, this is uh, my understanding of the, those so-called antitheses of the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes from an article by David Gushy and uh, someone else whose name I'm forgetting. I cite the article in my uh, Matthew commentary. But as I understand these, they're not antitheses. It's not that Jesus says, you've heard, uh, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, do not be angry. That's not the way that the, the, uh, the structure works. Uh, he says, thou sh you've heard it said, uh, thou, shalt not, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not kill. And then he describes various situations in which anger escalates to killing. Anger escalates to a punishable offense. I don't think uh, Jesus is saying that somebody who's angry with his brother, that it itself is going to bring him before a court. You have a series of ascending series of courts that Jesus describes. He's not saying that anger itself uh, brings you to in before court, but rather anger left unchecked leads to actions that will uh, lead, to, uh, lead to killing and lead to court. So he's describing kind of a, a vicious cycle where anger produces uh, a violation of the sixth word. But then when it gets to the positive commandments, it has to do with what you do with a brother with whom you are at odds. If your brother has anything against you, go and uh, seek reconciliation, leave your gift upon the altar, and go be reconciled to your brother. So the way that Jesus positively applies the sixth word is by being 
a peacemaker who's seeking reconciliation and mending mending relationships. Again, it's not just a bear. It's not just that you avoid killing your brother. <laughs> you avoid being a cane. Uh, but if you find yourself in a situation where uh, you're becoming a cane, that you take positive action to uh, be reconciled and to be in a harmonious relationship with your brother. And that's, I mean, Cain was given a warning that he was becoming a Cain um, before he actually killed his brother. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he could have taken steps at that point, right? Uh, and that's, that's what Jesus is instructing his disciples to do. And I think the, the, other, the other side of Jesus' commentary, as it were, on the sixth word has to do with his example, where he's keeping the sixth word by not killing anybody throughout his life. But uh, we can see his, if you think about his ministry as a, as a, under the rubric of the sixth word, again, it's highlighting the positive part of the sixth word, which is not just avoiding taking life or attacking the image of God, but it has to do with action to restore the image of God. He's healing people. He's forgiving sins. He's reconciling people to God. He's not assaulting the image of God. He's restoring that image. He says things, severe things to people. He denounces people, but his words aren't words of violence. His words are intended to give life, to draw people and call people to repentance. And so he lives a life of obedience to the sixth word in this positive sense of seeking life and enhancing life. And at the extreme, he's put in a position where he would have, in a sense, every right to take life, to defend himself, to call on his disciples to defend him from an unjust uh, arrest and sentence of death, but instead gives himself up. He, ha- he lets his life be taken rather than taken li- taking life. So um, in the Gospels, Jesus, Jesus is not only teaching on the, uh, the positive side of the sixth word, but he's also by his example is showing what obedience to the sixth word looks like for a disciple of Jesus. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.